a lot of people don't have a plan. You don't need a plan like you're going to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but you need a goal. Mm. because there's so much stuff that comes up right all of a sudden I, I remember I had used to have spas emailing saying hey would you do a, a bar salt for me and then this would happen and can you do this for me and I would be like yes this is such a cool little opportunity none mm. of them actually ramped up to my goal mm. so they were just taking me off and I just constantly got distracted and wasted money and it was when I finally realized that which took me longer than I should have should admit to that was when I think a tech began to actually perform better mm something I always tell people now. That was our amazing guest, Brianne West, an exceptional entrepreneur from New Zealand. She's the founder of Atik, a regenerative beauty brand, which is now sold in over 22 countries. She has won so many entrepreneurial awards, it's hard to name them all, but I'll start with two. 2019, she was New Zealand Young Entrepreneur of the Year. In 2020, she was crowned One Young World's Entrepreneur of the Year as well. It really is an awesome conversation, and she shares so much knowledge. So if it's you out there who's just started as your entrepreneurial journey, or you're a small business who's just started, or maybe you're thinking about starting, this is a really good podcast for you to listen to because Brianne shares so many insights. She also talks about her new startup called Naus, where she supports early stage startups with a purpose. Through consultancy and investment, she helps scale purpose-led brands. So if that's you out there, maybe reach out to Brianne through her new venture, Naus. She's also one of the speakers at Smeany Growth in Wellington in July. So without further ado, let's get into the podcast. Kelda Brianne, how are you? Hello. How are you doing? I'm very well. Hey, I am always recording this podcast from the centre of the North North Island in New Zealand, Aotearoa, Rotorua. Whereabouts are you? Ōtutahi, Christchurch. Where it is, for once, not raining. Can you tell us what your first ever, like, ever, ever paid job was? And that could have been a paper route, working in the dairy or whatever that might have been. <laughs> I think it was quite boring. I think it was a cafe waitressing role. Um, I have a bit of a, a checkered history with employment because I'm just, just a, a terrific employee because I'm just one of my many character flaws is that I'm being told what to do. And um, I think at one point I had something crazy like 11 jobs in a year just because I just couldn't do it. And that was before I started my businesses. So no. Cafe. I worked at a cafe as well. And making flat whites when I was working in a cafe in 1995 is very different to what they do and how they make a cafe uh, flat white now. So at the time, there was a a tube. So they have a barista machine, a special machine, and there was a tube that went from the machine into a bottle of milk. And then you just pressed a button and it automatically fluffed it up. It's Uh, it's, it's not like this beautiful art with, with, you know, how they do it now. Um, Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, now, now it is an artist. It's, it's, we'll carry on past our cafe days. Could you talk us through what um, your sort of origin story from the cafe times? Um, a bit of school history where you where you were brought up, raised, and then into your first sort of professional career job, and then how you um, ended up um, founding a global company. I love that origin story. It makes you sound like a villain. Well, you know, I might be still on yet. Who knows what will happen? Um, so I was born in the Isle of Man, which is a tiny country between oh. England and Ireland that pretty much no one's ever heard of unless you race motorbikes. I, um, I, I, I know about Isle of Man. Yeah, I watch some motorbikes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. yeah most people have, have never heard of it and give me a blank look. But uh, we moved to New Zealand with my mum and dad uh, when I was seven-ish and uh, moved to Dunedin. I spent a, a couple of months there, decided we were sick of the rain. Dunedin's lovely, just a bit damp. Uh, and then I grew up in Queenstown, where I, you know, went through all of my schooling. 
which was a wonderful, lovely place to grow up. It's changed immeasurably, as you'd imagine. Uh, then moved up to Christchurch for uh, university and have stayed here ever since. Um, I always knew through my entire life that I was obsessed with science and animals. And um, what I didn't know, what I didn't really give a name to was the idea of business changing stuff. So what I what I, I started a pet detective agency when I was eight. Um, I, I started an art gallery when I was, you know, like three weeks later, which was really just dotting paintings all around my poor babysitter's house. Uh, I did a lot of stuff like that um, because I really like the creative aspect of things. And but then throughout my high school period, uh, didn't really do anything too exciting. I liked school, but didn't really knuckle down. Was too distracted by everything else that was going on, too excitable. But I still loved science and knew I was going to go to university. So moved up to Christchurch to study biology and a bit of chemistry thrown on. And on that very first day, uh, I remember getting home from my lectures and being all excited to share it with my new flatmates. And um, they were all at work. And I mm -hmm. thought, well, that sucks because I don't want a job, but I do need money to live. Uh, so I started a cake, cake decorating company. Now, you'll mm -hmm. note I don't have a cake decorating company now because I, I can't decorate cakes. My mum can. She's a fabulous cake decorator. And I mean, I can ice them, but I'm certainly not going to craft you a 3D dragon, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so a day later, I closed that after I got my first order because I panicked and realized I can't do that. And that was when I started my first cosmetics company, which was just like a bog standard liquid shampoos, conditioners and stuff. It was called Pure. I sold it on Trade Me Message Board, of all things. Um, mm -hmm. And on Facebook, like Facebook was different back then. Obviously, it was just more about connecting with friends and family. It was not the commercial entity it is now. And um, then I, I got bored of that. So I started a second company called Tub, which was a, a spoonable fudge, so a confectionery company, which was like equal parts of chocolate butter, sugar, freaking delicious. <laughs> uh, whilst I was still running pure and at university, dropped down to university part-time, barely part-time, just I had no time to do anything. Mm -hmm. And then I realized that I was actually bored, rigid still. And to me, it wasn't running the business. It was running a business to solve a meaningful problem, mm. you know, whether it's social or environmental. I sold both those businesses. Uh, it didn't make me any money to begin to start the next one, unfortunately. Um, mm -hmm. But a day or two later, I came up with the idea of a teak, which was combining a product that rid the world of a wasteful product, bottles, plastic bottles, mm -hmm. but also operated in a way that was as fair and kind, as equitable as, as possible. Mm. And that's where it began. So based on my research, that was 2012, and you're doing this in your kitchen. So can you tell us, like, how do you, like, pure, you've obviously got an entrepreneurial spirit where you've started pure, uh, and, and what was Pure? So how did you make that? Was it 100% designed by yourself? From, yeah. From, yeah. Yeah. So I just did loads and loads of research. Obviously, the university degree was helpful. Uh, chemistry was obviously helpful. And I had all my, my school study too. And I, I just taught myself. It was very basic products to begin with. And it evolved in complexity as I went through the, the cosmetic chemistry journey, really. But yeah, I formulated everything in my kitchen. Uh, learned things like aseptic technique and how to formulate things safely and how to put through registration of that sort of thing and yeah very self-taught so so entrepreneurial journey is, is is a tricky one i suppose and, and like like our listeners that they've heard it that i'm i'm on that i'm on that journey at the moment as well what were some of the the factors that you thought were the trickiest and that were surprising for you that 
and that why they are they're tricky for you like whether it was the books or the the marketing or the getting your product into people's hands or, or whatever that might have been I find a lot of people are frightened of marketing, but to me, marketing is just having a conversation with people about stuff you're passionate about. So that's all the being the bit I like. Mm-hmm. Um, financials, hate. <laughs> hate it less now. Um, hated it back then because I didn't understand the, how, the importance of the story it was telling me. So mm-hmm. I never really paid attention to it. Uh, you know, I do my zero reconciliations about 14 months too late and then not remember what each transaction was for. Um, my poor accountant, so patient. Uh, so I hated that, but it did teach me a lot. Those early two businesses taught me a lot to take into a teak. Uh, but actually, I think the biggest issue was sourcing. So using, so I, we used a lot of fair trade ingredients wherever possible, and they were the easiest things to source. It was the more commoditized ingredients that became a real problem. And often, actually, I very clearly remember, I think in the first or second year, um, I had a very critical ingredient that's in most of um, Atik's foaming products. And our supplier said, yes, I've sent you uh, a ton and um, it, it's on the way. And uh, it just never turned up. And that guy just vanished with my money and I missed Christmas. And I, I remember being really surprised at how actually how complex supply chains are. And I know anyone who's ever managed a supply chain will be like, yeah, obviously. But I didn't know that back then. Um, lots of things have surprised me. The things I thought would be hard have not been. And vice versa. Hmm. So what was the original plan with a tea? And and how has it changed from your original um, building something in the kitchen to where it is now? Didn't have a plan. Mm-hmm. Never never used a plan. I'm now a big advocate of the likes of a plan on a page, which is sort of a template I put together to help people. Uh, but I never had one. I wanted to save uh, a million plastic bottles by 2020. And if I'm perfectly honest, I didn't think that was a doable thing. Uh, I, I kind of put it in the category of like BP being like, we'll be carbon neutral by 2050, whatever that means. <laughs> uh, it means nothing. But um, it, it, it was kind of evolved. It was an experiment. I didn't even know if people would like the idea or let alone the products. And it turned out they did. They understood why you wanted a product like this. And um, it, it, it grew beyond my wildest dreams. So it was about a year and a half when the kitchen became a real hindrance. You know, I couldn't make more than I think. I think it was about 15 bars a day, which is laughable. Uh, so I, I hired a friend to help me wrap and pack orders and bars, which was wonderful. But it, it got to this horrible point where we really needed to move into a factory or or quit. And I was really worried about taking that next step and, you know, signing up to a two-year lease and what that would entail and the financial penalties. And um, that was when I met a business mentor through university competition. And uh, through sort of working with him, he gave me the confidence to to go and do that next step. But I still didn't have a plan back then either. (laughs) So what what I don't have a plan. I don't think a lot of people don't have a plan. You don't need a plan like you're going to do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, but you need a goal Mm. because there's so much stuff that comes up, right? All of a sudden, I remember I used to have spas emailing saying, hey, would you do a a bar salt for me? And then this would happen and can you do this for me? And I would be like, yes, because this is such a cool little opportunity. None Mm. of them actually ramped up to my goal. Mm. So they were just taking me off and I just constantly got distracted and wasted money. And it was when I finally realized that, certainly longer than I should admit to, that was when I think Atik began to actually perform better. Mm. Something I always tell people now. So so 2012, you were in the kitchen doing 15 bars a day. You decided to, or you 
you made the step, let's say, which is a very tricky one to, or a brave one, let's say, to to take the leap of faith um, to follow your your own brand. You went into some type of warehouse. What was? So I'm just trying to I'm just trying to paint a picture of, of how, the, how the whole business um, transpired to where it is right right now. So how daunting was it for you to take that first step from going from kitchen to leased premise? And side note or comma, who was your first ever employee to help you to get that way? Um, I don't have a very good memory. <laughs> and I don't I don't remember it to be hugely daunting. Mm, good. But so to give you a bit of context, with Tub, I had signed stupidly signed a large lease uh, based off demand the only problem being that I couldn't actually service the demand because I couldn't make enough product mm -hmm. with tub because the, the demand was bonkers for that product it was delicious so it was flawed in many many ways and I didn't have the experience or the support around me who knew how to tackle those problems mm. so I was a little bit gun shy when it came to signing a lease because I really didn't want to end up in the same situation again so it took me longer because of that, but I don't think I was actually frightened of the of it. And I, I remember moving day because that was amazing because I think I just sat on the floor before we'd even moved all the furniture in. Um, I just painted it, so I was probably high off paint fumes. And I just remember sitting there thinking, this is my own space that I can go whenever I want to. I can work late. I can, you know, it's not going to interfere with anyone at home because um, I live with my then boyfriend at that point. And he was sick of being covered in shampoo. We were all sick of being covered in shampoo. So it was it was such a good feeling. Um, but it was, yeah, I mean, it was scary signing the line, but I had a really nice landlord, really, really nice guy who was very supportive of the whole thing. So that was very helpful. And my first employee was a friend. Uh, in fact, most of my first sort of four or five of them were really. Um, and she worked out of her house. So this was pre-factory. She worked out of her house wrapping bars. Um, she had uh, she had children at home and it was a nice, flexible lifestyle for her. But I took over her house as much as I took over mine. So <laughs> it, um, it became just as intolerable for her, I think. Yeah. So you so you moved into to, to the warehouse. So talk us through the next few years. So what year are we talking now? Is this 2013, 2014? Uh, it would have been the beginning of 2014, I mm -hmm. think. I'm not sure. Um. So we, we turtled on for the next year or so. Um, it must be the end of 2014, actually, sorry. And that same business mentor put in, I think, 50 grand in investment and became my official business partner. And with that 50 grand, we realized that, oh, shit, we actually need to raise a lot more money uh, because we very much needed to change the branding. The branding was cutesy. And for some reason, I'd gone for 1950s pinup, which just didn't fit anything about what I wanted to do with the brand. So the brand you see today couldn't be any further removed. Um, so it would have been 2015, we did our first equity crowdfunding round. And that was, I'm going to assume people know what equity crowdfunding is, who are listening, but it's, you know, the stock market largely. So you sell shares on a platform to ordinary investors as opposed to angel investors. And I, I did equity crowdfunding because it seemed much less daunting. If you've never done capital raising before, it seems terrifying and you hear all of the bad stories. And I mean, I have my own bad stories about investment. They are um, tricky to navigate. So I wanted to do equity crowdfunding because it seemed friendlier. And I also really like the idea of bringing along, because the tech's always been a passion-led business. And so I had a lot of really passionate customers and to bring them along the journey was really cool. Mm. So mid-2015, we raised 200K from about 100 holders on PledgeMe, which was the best experience. 
Um, that's what we revamped the entire brand with what you see today, the colourful and the new logo and, and so on, and the new name, because it started as Sorbet, I should say. The company started as Sorbet, the word, but mm -hmm. after the equity crowdfunding round, when we had sold the shares based on the notion of going offshore to Australia and America, I realised I couldn't get those trademarks, couldn't get the trademark mm -hmm. for Sorbet, because it's an incredibly common word. <laughs> couldn't get them, which sucked. So changed it to a teak, changed the brand, and um, 2016 was really when, to use the proverbial, the shit hit the fan and we started to go viral around the world. So I, I am going to talk about equity raising a little bit because I think it is actually one of the topics on Smeeny Growth. We've got we've got four different um, VC funding. We've got um, a fintech company and um, Marcelo who have raised some equity as well. <clears throat> So how does it work in regards to, like, who do you think could actually go out and raise some capital for their business? Does it have to be something that's likely to go global? Or, and also, what information did you need to have? When I say what information, like um, accounting documentation, legal documentation, trademarks, all the, all the sorts of things. What, what's the pre-equity raising information you need? Oh, I'll ask you a second question first because it's the most boring. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's the most straightforward. There you go. Uh, you need to have everything you would provide to an ordinary investor. So you need to have financials and forecasts. Uh, you need to have them based on actual assumptions. You need to have a solid, well, you need to have a valuation based on a solid methodology. Obviously, valuations are black magic, right? Um, you need to have your story as to what you're going to do, the team, everything you would put in an ordinary pitch deck and I think you really need to be even I don't want to say even more transparent because it means you know, it sounds like people are misleading angel investors but there seems to be this little undercurrent of uh, because they are and I don't like this term either but because they're unsophisticated investors i.e they've probably not done this very often they don't know what to ask you can pull the wool over their eyes and I think that's kind of a despicable attitude because these are mm. people whose money that probably means more to them than an angel investor because they have less of it massive generalization obviously uh so when i say um equity crowdfunding to me was more uh was less daunting it's because of the people involved not the information you have to provide there are lots of hoops to jump through and i use pledge me they currently they now have something called pledge me university where they walk you through everything you need to do mm. so they make it nice and simple but back then it was a little bit figure it out alongside a lawyer who'd never done it before because it was brand new and an accountant who'd never done it before because it was brand new but we figured it out and it it took three weeks to pull together that first round. It wasn't difficult. And you can even still see um, Atik's original, Sorbet's original um, pitch decks on pledgeme.com.co.nz. They're still around, so have a bit of an idea. I look at the back of them and laugh. <laughs> Idealistic. Uh, as for who it's for, my opinion differs on a few people's here. I think anybody can do it who's got a particularly community-facing brand. I don't think it will do particularly well for say an accountant or a lawyer who hasn't got a groundswell of support and no it doesn't have to be something that's going to go global but it does help if it solves a problem that the community cares about so it's beyond just making money I don't think investors want to return but they also like to feel like they're part of something a bit bigger and I mean that's mm. true of angel investors and stuff as well but I, I found that equity crowdfunders are really drawn to those problem-solving businesses his purpose their businesses uh and, and obviously the, the mainstream investment is changing a little bit too but that's one of the most appealing things there so if you've you know you've got a community facing brand you've got something that 
people want to talk about and get excited about. Something that's easy to understand, uh, the more complex the product or service, the harder it is to explain, the harder it is to generate that support, simply because people don't know what you're talking about. Um, and then something I guess people feel they can contribute to. Mm. That's another one too. Mm. But there's always exceptions. Plenty of examples of brands that I wouldn't have thought would do well have and that I thought would do well haven't because there's a lot of things that come into it. Mm. Evaluations on equity crowdfunding, I have seen some of them have been laughable and, and they don't get funded because of it. You have to be realistic. So when you're um, giving away equity, um, what's, what's the payoff? So did you say, well, um, the the people who are investing in your business have a share? And mm -hmm. then you say, I'm, I'm going to have 100,000 shares and I'm, I'm happy to sell 20,000 of those shares to um, people who, who are interested in, in investing. Is it something like that? I can't remember the exact amount, but we sold 16% of a teak in the first round and mm -hmm. either 8 or 11% in the second Okay, cool. Because uh, we did a sequity crowdfunding round, which was a larger amount of money, but the company was valued more, so a smaller percentage. And we got an additional 200,000 shareholders in that round from memory. Cool. Good. So, for those people out there who do not know, go jump onto PledgeBee. You're about to see the first of a yeah. pitch deck um, and get a better understanding. And that, and the university is a really good idea. Also, NZ Trade and Enterprise, I think they have some. Uh, they do have some some really good resources on their website as well. Uh, and if you still need to know more, we have a VC funding panel and a workshop as well about how to create a pitch deck, how to pitch your 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 business to VC fundings or any sort of angel invested or any sort of investors as well. So we'll move on. What I didn't ask, uh, so and I, I might have to. Um, creatively edit this one is that can you explain to our audience exactly what etique is oh yeah it's funny <laughs> i forget that which is almost <laughs> arrogant because i just assume people will know uh so etique is a regenerative beauty brand and by that i mean we give back more than we take but what we do is produce bars of product like shampoo conditioner moisturizers everything you use in your bathroom or your your kitchen almost uh but we do it in a plastic free way so they're not liquids but they're not soap it's as if you poured a bottle of shampoo or conditioner into a saucepan and boiled off all the water. We've got the active ingredients in a block so that when you head in the shower with your bar of shampoo, you swipe it down your hair and you've reactivated it if you like. Mm. Uh, yeah. Brilliant. And so then your original plan was to, to, to remove 1 million bottles out of the, the world, let's say, um, by 2020. What year did it actually happen? 2018. 2018. And and I've heard another goal of yours, which is pretty aspirational. What's your, what's your next big number? <laughs> oh, it makes me feel a bit sick. Half a billion by 2030. Half a billion bottles. So how do you calculate? Um, so every time you sell a product, is that is that equates to being okay? I've removed a bottle because someone would have bought a bottle of shampoo rather than basically. Yeah, so each product uh, has a different concentration based on a variety of different factors and therefore displaces uh, a certain number of bottles. So over the last 11 years, has there been a particular time in your career where there's, it's been really, really, really challenging for you? And, and, and not, you don't have to, I suppose, describe what the situation was, but how did you manage that 
internally. If you have anxiety or if you wake up in the middle of the night and keep freaking out about things, is, can you explain a situation that you might have gone through and how you sort of overcame it? So many people have anxiety now. I just kind of think it's a human condition and the people without it, they're the weird ones, right? <laughs> uh, I'm actually a much more anxious, neurotic person than I think people think, uh, which is kind of funny because people say, oh, you're always so together. I'm like, who are you looking at? <laughs> uh, it was very sweet. But um, uh, challenging moments consistently, many, many, many of them um, and a whole variety of factors. But what I found over time, so even a small problem would really rattle me 2012, 2013, 2014, right? And now I have built up resilience to the point where it has to be a pretty big issue to really rattle me. Now, um, and I think the way you get through these challenges, the way I got through them, is I have quite an intense emotional reaction for a short period of time, mm -hmm. which I think I prefer than to a, a milder one for a longer period. So I will, I will catastrophize, if you like. Um, say, I can't even think of an example. I don't know. Say we had a bad customer review because they used to really bother me because it feels intensely personal. Um, I got a really bad customer review, say. And some people get very vicious. So it's not that the, they don't necessarily just like dislike the product. They hate you and everything your business stands for. And they're going to tell all their friends that you suck and you're a, a miserable person and a terrible business. And, and you might think I'm exaggerating, but no, we've received reviews like that simply because the shampoo didn't work for them or whatever, right? Um, and those sorts of things used to shake me to the core. And I used to think, well, what am I doing? This is pointless. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go back to the garden and eat worms, you know? It used to be all-encompassing and, and quite an emotional reaction. Um, so the way that fades quite quickly, and then you start to think about it a little bit more logically, obviously we have this many happy customers, uh, we have this many good things, I have this much support, uh, friends and family around me, and you just move through it by sort of feeling the feelings, allowing yourself to. But after a certain point, there's no more, and you're not just going to dwell on negative cycle of emotions, if you like, then it's, I'm going to think about this logically, think about facts and something I found really interesting. So um, my riding coach, I'm a horse rider, my riding coach's mum is a life coach. Now, I'll be honest, uh, a couple of years ago, I thought life coaches were just sort of like warm and fluffies and, and they weren't, they didn't have tangible, helpful things, which is, it was my ignorance, no reflection on them. Um, but she taught me this really helpful exercise, which I try and tell as many people as possible. So if you're feeling a certain way about a, a situation, write down on a piece of paper as many things that you know to be true about that situation. You know, whether people, you know that somebody hates you for this, you know that they're thinking this or they're telling everybody this or, or you're a failure because of this, right? And then go back to that piece of paper and go through each one and see how many of them are irrefutable facts backed up by evidence versus mm. your thoughts, feelings about a situation. And almost every time you find out not one of those single things you're worrying about is actual truth. Mm. It's just something your brain has made up because our brains hate us. And that I find is a really useful thing to get through a challenging situation, regardless whether it's personal, professional or what. How many times did you actually have to go through that process of writing things down or now is it just a mental checklist? You're like, is that actually true? No, no, no. I no, only no. ever did that for the big ones. Mm. You mm. know, I, I've only done that a few times. But, I, yeah, I think I do, I guess, do it mentally. If I if I think something now, um, everybody in the room hates me, I'll think, well, we know that's not really true, don't we? 
most of the people in the room don't know who you are and they don't care because nobody cares about you as much as you think they do because they're far too busy worried about everyone else hating them. Like I said, our brains are very bizarre places that I don't think like us very much. And my dog's barking. I'm at home, so my dog's barking up on the fence up there. I can see him. Um, hey, um, in regards to the more, so this, I've had the pleasure of having now 86 guests on, on the yeah, podcast and they all sort of there's no one that says that they've not had an issue and no one says that they never it's for it's consistent um challenges coming their way and you just get more experienced about debt managing them i suppose internally there's 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 payroll there's there's brand there's reviews there's all these different things that that are coming up that can sometimes impact the way that you live or the way that you think or the way that you sleep as well, but just you got to learn to try and navigate them, but you're not alone. So if you, um, for anyone out there who's going through those periods right now, I must reach out to one of your friends, have a chat. Um, I had a really cool, cool reach out from one of my friend's wives the other day. He said, Hey, look, can you um, reach out to X person because he, he's really not in a good space. So we instantly dropped my stuff, went and had a cup of coffee. We just went for a walk and had a talk. And so for anyone out there who might be going through that and how to just reach out to someone, don't, don't bottle it up. Please don't bottle really it up. really good advice. Mm. You, you do feel intensely isolated because there's very few people unless they're doing something similar who can understand what it feels like to run a business and to put everything on the line. Uh, that's just why there's so many, you know, founder meetup groups, which I think is a really nice thing to take advantage of. And a lot of people don't, I actually don't. Uh, because you might not like networking or that sort of thing. But if you are in that sort of space, it's a really good thing to do. What resilience is, it's not learning to rely on people around you. It's understanding that you have the ability to overcome any any problem. It is having, it is developing faith in yourself. It is not developing faith in your understanding and, and your knowledge to therefore solve every problem. It's developing the belief in yourself to overcome any problem and to go and find the solution so that you can handle anything because you can keep yourself in check to go and find the the information it's almost like prior to developing that resilience you're more afraid of your reaction and your inability because you've never done it before but developing resilience is developing confidence in yourself to handle anything that comes your way and we're not born with it i don't think some people might be or some people might be more more used to it, depending on w w what sort of things they went through in the, in their yeah. in their childhood. Whether they've gone through prison situations in sport, um, or been bullied yeah. at school, something like that, or whatever it might have been, and you've had to go through a, a process to be able to get to the other side and, and work and work it out. So some people might be have just done it for longer, maybe than it is. That's um, very true. Yeah, yeah. Then, then just know how to manage it better, because I think you know some people just don't care about anything. And then they're disillusioned by things that are going to come their way. So personally, I feel that if you've got something that's bugging you all the time, accept it, let it go. But understand that it's you need to be practical about how to manage the, the, the thing that's telling you to do something as well. So don't just be oblivious to, to a potential issue, and especially in your business, that might come your way. <laughs> Never ignore something because it's easier to learn that one. No, no, no. And so actually, there's a last year... I reached out to um, Zero. Zero uh, has this thing called XAP, Zero Assistance Program. So if anyone out there is free, I think MYOB actually has one as well. So two two 
different similar sort of things smiling minds is a really cool app so um um, reach out go at xap is you can reach out to them through their um, network and they'll link you up with benny star and then they'll have a bit of a chat with a, with with someone and then it's, it's really helpful so anyone out there you can do that nice. there's, heaps, there's heaps of amazing tools out there we'll move on we'll move we'll move on from this one so what what are you doing now like talk us through a, a day in a life of of brianne and and where you're looking to go in the future as well well, I stepped down as CEO of a teak. Uh, mm -hmm. I think it must be about a month ago now. Mm -hmm. I don't know why I'm incapable of sitting down and not playing with things. I'm just going to put that back down. <laughs> um, yeah, so I I stepped down. Let's say let's say a month ago. Um, it was basically time. The company had got to the point where it's kind of established and and stable, and it's not as interesting for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am currently working on a, a secret startup that I'm not allowed to talk, to talk about yet, but I'm going to start soon. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the meantime, I've created, uh, I don't know if you saw last year, we, a business partner and I launched something called NAUS, which is um, a business mentoring and mm -hmm. uh, investment yes. company for impact lead companies. And so almost to create a bit of a, an ecosystem around um, impact leads businesses in Aotearoa in Australia, uh, we bolted on something called Business But Better, which is an online learning platform from business foundations, you know, from as simple as how to register your business all the way through how to evaluate markets for export. Uh, so it's online and has a whole bunch of group coaching and one-on-one -on -one coaching that comes with it. So the theory is, you know, we catch people with, they've got an idea and move them through how to actually create that and turn it into an impact making enterprise and then all the way through to how they approach others for investment. Because mm -hmm. I found, um, I got a lot of advice back in the day that you can't have impact whilst you're a startup. And that's fundamentally the wrong thing to do because when you're a startup is when you're forming those, those foundations. And if you are trying to embed, I mean, go and have a look at any big corporate and see how well embedding values in at the end is going. Mm. It doesn't work. If you want to be a values led enterprise, it needs to be from day one. And that's what we're trying to help people do and understand that old school business wisdom is not wise or particularly useful. That's what I'm doing. And it's supposed to be a bit of a side hustle, you know, just to help people. And because and, I get a lot of requests for mentoring, and it's just to sort of move those through so they can get the help they need as they need. Um, but it's pretty much turned into a full time job. So that's worked out not as I anticipated. So, what is your definition of an impact led startup or business? Something, a business. So, it has to be financially sustainable, not a non profit. Uh, no hate to non-profits, it's just a business can move quicker because they don't have to constantly uh, worry about grants mm -hmm. well, as long as you're doing it right. Uh, uh, but an impact lead business is a business that is working to solve a problem with the same uh, efforts it is working to create a profit. So it it really does value the triple bottom line, people plan at profit. Mm. So It's so doing more good than bad, yeah, which yeah, is an yeah. easy thing to say but a hard thing to do. So for those businesses out there or people out there who are maybe a couple of years in and they, that's where they want to be, what, what as being an impact sort of lead business, what steps, apart from reaching out to you and, go, and going through the NAUS um, program, um, what do you think would be a good first step for them to have a think about, about let's say um, their pot plant business, and I'm just looking at a pot plant, and the two years in, they're selling them, selling them online, and go, oh man, the, these, the actual 
pot plants are they're, they're not ethically sourced it's they're, they're, they're you know what do you think would be a good step i mean obviously I, I can't say what would be the ideal step for every business but no the first thing you do is evaluate everything you're doing so look at everything you're doing and think of try and find the points of weakness mm. so to use your example uh the plants themselves aren't sourced ethically i don't even know you know maybe they come from offshore and maybe that's a, a but we, st we actually grow that same plant in New Zealand. Why don't we source them locally? Or the plant pots are made from an unrecyclable type of plastic. So you look at all these points of weakness that you want to tackle and you pick one, not all of them. You mm. pick one and you work to solve that problem. And you may not come upon the perfect solution because perfect solutions do not readily exist in this very imperfect system we have built. But you work to lessen your impact. So maybe you can't get rid of the plastic pot but you can make it a recycled so it's made out of post-consumer waste you know mm. or you make it so it's readily recyclable or biodegradable or you implement some kind of return plan whatever there's a whole swathe of ways to solve lots of problems so once you've tackled that one you've not only got something to talk about from a marketing side which is exciting and good for your customers so there's a business side to it but also it gives you confidence again in your ability to solve that problem from a sustainable lens mm. and then you go on to the next one and I always recommend people start with the easiest first you know everyone wants to go and rush headlong into suddenly getting rid of all plastic out of the supply chain which is impossible or um, becoming carbon neutral which is nonsense you are so much better off and you will have so much more impact if you tackle the problems that are specific to your business and then talk about it to your customers and get them along the journey with you. Nice, nice. And if you want to solve a problem, if you, it is much harder to, it is, it is nice and easy to implement uh, policies, if you like, in place like that, that I've just talked about. If you mm. want to create a genuinely impact led enterprise you have to be at the heart of it solving some kind of big meaty problem so to use your pot plant example again just selling pot plants for two years and decided that's not enough i want to go and create the world's most sustainable pot plant company right so you have to you have to have that as the basis of every decision you make mm. people ask me all the time what i compromised on to get a teak to where it is and the answer is emphatically nothing and never ever were it never changed a value to fit a customer or a retailer or to make life easier because it would have undermined the very point of a teak and that is the difference between an impact lead enterprise and an enterprise that says it's impact lead and actually doesn't care hmm. so with the teak and the brand how did what were some of the tactics or strategies or did you have any that helped get your product in front of in people's hands and in, in people's showers, literally in people's hands, um, and and here around around the world, uh, is, is, was there and was there a single point in time where you, something just happened and clicked, and then all of a sudden you just sort of exploded? <laughs> let's say, maybe wrong word, but yeah. lots of things laddered up to it. So mm. the tactic really for getting it into everybody's hands and everyone talking about it was PR. But mm. it was the fact that we had all of the stuff to talk about. We were so much more than just a shampoo bar company. Uh, we had all these exciting environmental and, and social benefits. All of those laddered up to the fact that PR wanted to, or press wanted to talk about us because we had lots to talk about and mm. we were different. So if you get all those foundations right, it's not just some soft, squishy nonsense that makes you feel better. It's actually a business. It, it's a really helpful business tool. 
So we went, I talked about in 2016, it being how we started going viral around the world, that was due solely to press. Mm. And it wasn't even what you paid for. Mm. Uh, we appeared in the Huffington Post and uh, we went viral around the world from that one article. It was just talking about the business at large. And um, that was when Britney Spears, of all people, found us and mm. posted about us on Facebook. And Ashton Kutcher, we never paid either of them. I mean, we couldn't have afforded either of them. People who think that we paid for that are mad. They certainly couldn't afford to. Um, and that was all as a result of having that 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 inner purpose, really, and having something people got excited about. And that just led to greater and greater press and expansion mm -hmm. offshore. I might talk to the PR piece a little bit. And let's say if you're a business, any sort of business, what would be a good step to try and create a story that gets picked up by the press that could potentially help your business get into Ashton Kutcher's hands <laughs> or anybody. Um, if, if you're going on Facebook, if you're using LinkedIn or Meta or LinkedIn, the ads are expensive and sometimes you don't have that budget to be able to reach. LinkedIn ads um, are rubbish. Um, <laughs> pardon me? LinkedIn adverts are rubbish. Don't waste your time or money. <laughs> Yeah, they're expensive, but they're, they're highly targeted though, but they are, they are very expensive. But who do you go to? Like, where do you reach out to? Do you go to wouldn't a PR? Be my first step. I wouldn't reach out to someone first. No. Uh, first step would be deciding why anyone should talk about you. Hmm. So a PR specialist will help drag that out of you. But if you can't afford to, you can do it yourself hmm. and sit down and have a bit of a, a real serious conversation. Why would somebody buy your pot plant versus the one from Bunnings? What is the differentiation factor? Why are you better? Why are you best? Or just why are you different? They are not necessarily the same thing. Mm -hmm. uh, what problem are you solving? Who are you solving it for? You need to know all of this stuff. And everyone says this is just marketing nonsense. It's not really that important. It's actually very important. I used to be one of those people who thought it was lame too. <laughs> uh, because that will help you understand what's different about you. And then you can create a hook. Because the re reporter... They want to write about you because they need to write a certain amount of articles a day hmm. and it's hard constantly finding stuff. So they want to write about you, but you have got to make it easy for them by making it worth their while, by giving them something good, give them something new or exciting that they know a consumer is going to be excited about, give them something controversial potentially, not controversial with the sake of it, but are you as a company standing against some kind of evil Goliath? You know, is it a David and Goliath type battle against Shell Oil? Maybe pick someone smaller with less lawyers. <laughs> uh, it makes sure there is something that's actually worth talking about. And then when you've got mm. that down, write a press release. You need a press release. So this is all I'm assuming if you're going to do it on your own, right? If you mm. can't afford a PR agency, which is fine because they can vary in price. So once you've got a bit of a hook, you have an idea of what you want the story about. It's not just I sell shampoo bars that are made out of a local um, material. You may get an article out of it in a small publication, but that's not going to set the world on fire. What makes you different? Put it in a press release. I have a press release template, actually. Um, but there's millions you can find online and craft it according to that. And then have a think about where you want it to appear. So have a think about your audience, where your target audience lives, versus the demographics of, say, Stuff versus NZ Herald. So Stuff tends to be slightly more left-leaning. NZ Herald tends to be more right-leaning, more businessy-ish. So who do you want to read it? Do you want a business audience to read it? Or do you want a lifestyle audience to read it or what? And then pick your outlet accordingly and pitch them and only them to begin mm -hmm. with. 
can say, I'm exclusively talking to you about this. I would love to see if you'd be interested in talking about it. I'm, I'm available for interviews. Uh, and you can find their emails on usually in their byline underneath articles they've written or on LinkedIn. They couldn't be easier to find. So finding the journalist is not the hard bit. That's why I think what you need to put the, all the effort in is to preparing them in advance and making sure you've got the hook and all the rest of it before you go off and get excited about talking to them. Because you've really only got, certainly you, you, you've got one chance for a first impression. Mm. What advice would you give someone who's asking for advice now from someone like yourself? Uh, one of them would be, one of them, get on TikTok. If you have a consumer-facing brand you're selling to people, get on TikTok right now. I don't want to hear your excuses about it being a teenage dancing platform. You should be on TikTok because it makes brands. Uh, second one would be to ensure that you speak up. So a lot of entrepreneurs surround themselves with advisors and board members and, and so on and so forth, which you should do. Advisors more so than board members, but mentors and and they'll all give you advice and some of that advice may not work with what you want to do with your business or may not mesh with your internal values, particularly relevant for impact led businesses. So you need to ensure that even if you feel intimidated, outgunned, you're the least experienced person in the room or the youngest or whatever, you feel deeply intimidated and you don't belong in there, you need to make sure you still speak up anyway. I felt like that. I feel like that regularly, but I still ensure that I say something and get my point across. So that before we make a decision, we do have all perspectives because I have wasted hundreds of thousands of dollars and I'm not exaggerating with decisions I didn't want to do, but everybody said were the right thing to do and they weren't. So it's really important, even if you don't feel you belong in the room, to realize that you do belong in the room because it's your business. Mm. Sometimes those moments when you're, you're like, how did I get into this room? That's the room you're supposed to be in. To own it, <laughs> you're in there for a reason. You're in there for a reason. People don't give you seats at the table. You know, you've got to go and take them. Absolutely, trust yourself. Back yourself. Hey, you're speaking at the NZ SME and E Growth Event in Wellington um, in July this year. What are you going to chat to our audience about in general? Top line, high level. It'll be. Uh, it won't be fully chronological, but a. a a trick along the voyage of starting an impact-led purpose venture in a kitchen and taking it around the world mm. in a nutshell. In a nutshell. Why is that a saying? Why did we decide know. that putting something in a nutshell, mate? Have you ever thought about weird some of our sayings are? Anyway. Here's another one. I, I don't want to tell you how to suck eggs. I was like, dude, who sucks eggs? Yeah, I don't like, get that one either. <laughs> okay, you need, you need to tell me. Because I don't know how to suck eggs, actually. Please tell me. It's bizarre. It's really bizarre. <laughs> so, so you're obviously a busy person. What do you do to relax it or, or unwind? I have a lot of animals. So I live on a lifestyle block. And mm. I'm very lucky that I've got, you know, horses and cows to go and cuddle. And I find that very relaxing. Uh, I don't do it as often as I should. I don't unwind very often. Um, but I do a lot of reading. Find that it's relaxing. Um, I don't have good work-life balance, but I'm, I'm fine with it as it stands today. And when I'm no longer fine with it, I will go and, and, and readdress the balance. I also I do adventurous things like scuba dive, and I find mm. that, you know, when you're swimming around under the ocean, you tend not to be worried about too much else. Where is one of the loveliest reefs systems that you've... Ningaloo. <laughs> most, most spectacular and Ningaloo most Reef. Spectacular. Ningaloo Reef, yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Nicola is, is stunningly beautiful. It's the um, never east, the west coast of Australia, uh, about mm -hmm. 1,200 kilometres north of Perth. Mm -hmm. And I drove all the way out there in a couple of days and really literally nothing there. Uh, but the most amazing reef. Really cool. Last question. It's not so much a question. It's more of a, if you're in a room full of entrepreneurs who have just sort of just started their journey, what would be one thing that you'd want them to take away from chatting with you? Uh, that it is perfectly normal and everybody has felt the same way that you have no idea what you are doing and you are an out of control roller coaster heading to certain doom. That's very poetic, wasn't it? Uh, but it is perfectly normal to feel like you've no idea what you're doing a lot of the time and that's fine. And all you need to do is, uh, you know, back yourself, have faith in yourself because no one else is going to and um, go and find the answers that you need but feeling scared and stressed and stuff sometimes if you feel that you're the only one who worries about that sort of thing you can feel very isolating but i don't know a single entrepreneur who's never felt that way i don't think they exist there's a hundred things you tell them but that'd probably be a nice mushy one to end on awesome brand thank you so much for your time i really do appreciate it you've been awesome to chat with <laughs> very thank funny you that's great. Now, I'm very looking forward to um, meeting you face to face in July in Wellington. So, um, but um, from me and our audience, not that I can speak on behalf of our audience, but I will on this occasion. <laughs> Thank you very, very much for your time. And you have an amazing um, day down in the South Island down there. I will. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you so much for tuning into this podcast. Brienne was absolutely amazing, and we really do hope it added some value to you. If you want to catch her live in person, we, she's at the Ended Smini Growth Event, 11, 12th of July and Shed 6, 2023. You can still grab your registration or ticket to that if you can't make it down there physically. We have a virtual option too. But without further ado, I wanted to say thank you so much. If you could share this podcast, rate it on whatever platform you're on, that would be much appreciated. If you don't want to, it's cool too. You just be you. Kia ora.